Also this afternoon, brothers and sisters, we turn to the epistle of John. Due to the cancellations of last week, I was not able to organize it nicely. The sermon that I had this morning for last week, and then we would have had this afternoon sermon this morning. And by that, we can complete the series that we had the privilege of doing on 1 John. So that's why we don't have a catechism sermon this afternoon, but we may bring it to completion by focusing on the last verses of 1 John. But before that, we will first read a few passages. First of all, we read again the first four verses, just to see how John sets the tone for his entire letter. Then we read in chapter 4, the verses 1 through 6, and finally in chapter 5, the verses 13 through 21. So first, 1 John 1, the verses 1 through 4. This is the Word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. We now turn to chapter 4, the verses 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And then finally, chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, 
There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So far the reading of God's holy word. So this afternoon, brothers and sisters, we take as our focal point the last two verses of the, the epistle of John. The verses 20 and 21 are our text. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's our text. In response to the sermon, we will be singing from hymn 47, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Hymn 47, the first three verses. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words of our text, brothers and sisters, have a special place among the words in the Bible. They are at the end of this epistle of the Apostle John. The epistle itself, however, is believed to be the last one written, even after the second and the third. In the canon, these epistles were placed in order of length rather than chronologically. The third epistle was an independent one sent the, the earliest, while the second epistle was sent before the first, and the first was written to elaborate on John's concern, because the problem addressed in it had worsened since John wrote the shorter epistles. Chronologically, therefore, these words may well be considered the last words of Scripture. These words, then, are written, beloved, by the Apostle John, who is old, yes, very old, and who has come to the end of his life here on earth. During the last days in his earthly service, he gathers together his ebbing force to sum up his life's work in some concluding statements. 
realizing that we are listening here to the last words of the last living apostle, it is good to note once again the overriding concern that is on his heart and mind. And that concern is that his children may continue in the glorious communion which they have with God in Jesus Christ. It is that communion which was revealed to him by Christ. It also is the communion in which his spiritual children may share through the apostolic proclamation. That was his summarizing testimony, his last concern. Now that the word concern is not too strong, beloved, has become evident from the contents of this letter. After many years of proclamation and communion in which they had enjoyed the strong bond with God in Christ and with one another, this situation was jeopardized seriously. Attacks against the church had occurred. Heresy had come up. Now at the end of his apostleship, he had to defend the faith, stand up to preserve the truth. Apostasy among the membership had led to a distortion of the truth doctrine. As a result of this also, world conformity had caused a breach in the congregation. So there was enough reason for concern. Even though the apostle John could no longer influence the situation in his presence, he does want to stand up for the protection of the church, for the defense of the faith. And he does so in the way which is so well known of him. He is compassionate but firm. He expresses himself in love but sharply. His aim is to comfort the people, yet rejecting her heresy forcefully. Against that background, we have seen this letter come to us as well. Perhaps the issues on heresies may differ somewhat today. Nevertheless, the concern applies still. Who would not want to see the communion between God and his people preserved? Who would deny that the same communion is assailed in our time as well? Perhaps even with the same approach, the same attitude, the same arguments. But then the enlightening defense of this last apostle in this last words may instruct and comfort us too with the gospel of God's love in Jesus Christ. This gospel I summarize as follows. The apostle John praises the communion of life with the true God in Christ. And we see three things. First of all, we may know the true God. Secondly, we are in the true God. And thirdly, we should keep the true God. So the Apostle John praises the communion of life with the true God in Christ. 
And we see, first of all, we may know the true God. We are in the true God. We should keep the true God. So, first of all, we may know the true God. It is striking, brothers and sisters, that the Apostle John, at the end of his epistle, puts such a strong stress on what we know. We've seen the same this morning already, and so here again in the verses 18, 19, and 20, he repeats the words, beginning his statement with the words, we know. Thus, he emphasizes strongly that what he says is sure for us. There is no doubt about it, but it belongs to the certainty of faith. His concluding statements are made with the conviction that God has assured him of this truth. He has proved these statements to be true. In other words, if you don't believe what I am now saying, you make God a liar. So what is it that he is so sure about? We know, John says, that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. That's the first summarizing statement. And from the letter, it is clear that he does not mean that believers never sin, but that they don't live in sin. True children of God, true believers who are in Christ, they stumble, but they do not give themselves over to sin or remain in sin. They will confess their guilt. And they will continue fighting against sin. Why can we be so sure about this? They are born of God. That means they don't belong to the evil one any longer. They are no longer under his power, but in the power of God. For he who was born of God, that is, our Lord Jesus Christ, keeps them safe. That's what creates a contrast, a distinction, which is the basis for such a strong statement. Also, that conclusion is beyond a doubt. As the Apostle says in his next statement, verse 19, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That's another certain truth. We know that there is a sharp distinction between God's church and the world of the evil one. And that contrast must be maintained. It was a truth of faith which had to be stated emphatically because it was attacked in John's time. There have been people in the church who had become fed up with that distinction. In their faith, they had assumed an elitist spiritual life, a direct line to God, aside from everything else, aside from his words. And the church, as communion with God and with the fellow believers, was no longer central in their life. 
Therefore, the entire letter is against people who want to make their faith something personal and who were getting an aversion against the antithesis, who wanted to compromise their lifestyle with that of the unbelievers. And the result of it was that they developed heresy and that they undermined the love of God as displayed in Jesus Christ. Instead of showing fruits of thankfulness for God's love for us in a love for the brotherhood, they also broke up with the church. Some of them had left the church already. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Perhaps they formed a counter-church because they could not stand it in church any longer in the church which kept the apostolic doctrine so strictly. So there was a serious development indeed, beloved. It was so serious because it was also a threat to the faithful believers. For are we not all inclined that way? A personal faith, a special spirituality, and a life in which we share more in the pleasures of the world. That's nice, right? You can still go to heaven, even if you're not too strict to principles and confessions. That's the reason for this epistle. That's an important reason for heeding it today as well. Do we not agree that we are inclined that way? Do our actions not bear this out? I know that we don't want a minister to be moralizing from the pulpit, reminding us of a behavior, of attitudes, of practices which are or were not right. And in view of what the Apostle John is saying here, I should not need to say it either. For we know, we know what sinful behavior. We know what's a lifestyle that is of the world. We know it when our practices are not distinguishing us from those of the people in the world. We know. And we know as well that it cannot be that way. We know that those who are born of God don't live in such a lifestyle. So for that matter, the sermon need not be moralizing, for we know. We hold on to the word, which is very clear regarding these matters. He who is born of God doesn't give himself to any evil. Not a little bit either. We are of God, and the world is of the evil one. It's the one or the other. Then the Apostle John, beloved, reaches greater heights yet or confirms this truth more powerfully yet when he adds his third, we know, saying, literally, moreover, we know, that as for the overriding knowledge of faith is that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We know that for a fact. 
that the Son of God has come and has accomplished all the work of salvation, also that he has come to overcome the evil one, the world with all its corruption, so that we do not have to be misled by them anymore. We know this from the Son of God himself, for he has given us understanding. He is the Son of God himself who gave us that insight. Now it almost seems as if we are getting right into the discussion which must have been going on between the people of the apostolic church and the people of the counter-church. Therefore, the apostle John says, stop. We know, don't we? We base our faith on the word of God, right? Well, stick to that word. Indeed, it's very similar to discussions people have today about theories of evolution or the extent of the flood or the miracles in the Bible. Then, rather than claiming all sorts of scientific data and theories, our reply must be as well, why don't you submit to the Word? For what is the Word? It is the revelation of God. We know the true God. We know the will of the Lord. Sure, long ago we didn't know. Then we were blind. Then we did not know the true gods. But now the Son of God has come, and who would know God better than he did? As John writes in his account of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God's Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. John 1, verse 18. Or in Matthew, the Lord Jesus says, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Matthew 11, verse 27. Also in the Old Testament, God revealed himself, but that was only to Israel. And even then, he did not do so fully. But when Jesus Christ came, this changed. He is our highest prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us God's counsel of redemption. Well, he accepted the Old Testament scriptures, and he referred to the history of creation, to the flood, and he submitted to the authority of the Word of God. And he has sent out the apostles to tell the world who is the true God. And they did so, as we just read at the beginning of John's epistle, that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Thus we know him, what he did, what he will do, what he wants what purposes he has with the people, his goals with the world, you name it. We also know what relation there is between us and the world. We know, for the Son of God has revealed it all. 
as he has said it in his high priestly prayer. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. I manifested your name to them. And what then is the reaction quite often, beloved, to this overwhelming evidence that we do know, that we can be sure, that we do have the true doctrine? Yeah, but, yeah, but do we understand it all? We are sinners with darkened minds, so do we understand what Christ tells us about God? Doesn't the one understand it this way and the other that way? Maybe shortly after the fall, people could remember and had an idea what the true God was like. But how soon after don't we see idols come in, distorting the understanding of the true God? Isn't that the way people are? So won't people do the same thing with the revelation of Christ? Would that not be distorted too? No, John says. We know that the Son of God has given us understanding to know him who is true. We do not need a special spirituality for that. Does he, who is born of God, not share his spirit, beloved, with those who are born of God? Indeed, that's what we read in, for instance, Luke 24, verse 45. He opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. And that which happened with the apostles happened as well to those who listened to their words. As we read about Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Acts 16, verse 14 which is what happened to all those who were in Ephesus too. The eyes of their hearts were enlightened that they would know. Ephesians 1 verse 18. So that's what the Apostle John bases his statement on. He has given us understanding using a word denoting ongoing understanding. And that works the communion in which we live with him. But then things don't become foggier or stay vague or individualistic. Then it is not so that everyone can have his own opinion about God, about his word, and about his service, or about a Christian lifestyle as we hear today too. Then the conclusion is, we cannot say anymore today we know that's too absolute. Perhaps I should say that's absolutistic. It is more pious to say we don't know. All we have is a view, an opinion about it. Sure, yeah. But in the meantime, where is the reason for praise and communion where do we have the unity with God in Jesus Christ? That's how the truth gets lost. The way the communion becomes uncertain, the distinctions are gone, and also the antithesis with the world disappears. Why? Because we don't know anymore. 
Do you see what the Apostle John is saying, beloved? Inspired by the Holy Spirit? That's what you get when you let go of God's Word and when you start neglecting your confessions. That's why he stresses, hold on to the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ that you have learned the true God by Jesus Christ who gives you understanding. In a world of deceit and falsehood, God has revealed himself in the Son of God as the one who is true. God has not surrendered us to powers of darkness, but has endowed us with the ability to discern truth from error, to test the spirits, to see if they are from God. Through him you know the true God more and more, with whom the communion of life is sure, a communion which you should never jeopardize in any way. Why not? Well, as we see in the second place, we are in the true God. That's the reason which the Apostle John adduces to, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. We know that too. That is just as clear and firm. If we would lose that, we would lose everything. And we are in him, John puts with emphasis in Greek. He explicitly includes the verb, we are in him who is true. That makes it all so much the firmer. Not only is God known to us as the God who is faithful and true, but also the Lord Jesus Christ calls himself the Holy One, the True One. Revelation 3, verse 7 and 14. And now we are in him who is true. That's why we know. That's how we know. For those who remain in Christ remain in the truth. He is the life and the light of the world and the truth. As soon as we depart from him, we become vain in our own devices. And that's how it used to be too. We were in the world before. That meant that we were taken up in it. Our life was determined by the world in the power of the evil one. But now that we are in him who is true, now that communion determines our life. Now he claims our life. We live in God, the true God, and the God whom we know from creation, whom we know in Jesus Christ. That's how the text explains itself, where it says, we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the Savior who rescued us from the world, who has taken us out of that life in the world to God, to his Father. He did. We didn't. So explaining himself that way, beloved, John takes away the ground of any conceit, arrogance, or elitism, boasting as if we are so good when we say we know. Indeed, we are just as bad. 
We know ourselves to be sinners very well who are lost in themselves. But that's why we may state it so emphatically. It is in the communion with Christ that we know. It is in the communion with Him who is the truth that we understand the truth. In Christ, we are hidden in God, living with God, having communion with God. Why? For, John says, He is the true God and eternal life. Don't forget that. Don't deny it explicitly or implicitly. In John's days, that was denied by the Docetists, who denied that Jesus Christ was true God. So they explicitly denied that in Christ could be in God. To have communion with God, you did not need Christ. Because according to them, Christ was not God. But don't deny it implicitly either by saying that we cannot have the truth, cannot know the truth. For then you are saying that you, though you are in Christ, you cannot be in God who is the true one. And that may seem pious, but it's wrong. For Christ himself prayed for the unity in the true faith, that they may be one as we, Father, are one, that they may be one in us. In us. That's a communion with God and a communion in the truth, which is all-encompassing for our entire life. Again, it means it is everything or nothing. It means communion with Him in a life in the truth, living in Him, moving in Him, thinking in Him. That's not an expression of conceit, of pride, or of haughtiness, or of absolutism. But that's how the truth comes to us in Christ. We know God in His will, for we know it in Christ. That's what the enemies denied. But in it they denied Christ as the true Son of God. So, beloved, we are in the true God, and we wished that all were in God, in everything, truly according to His Word. Let's hold on to that. Let's not allow ideas or views or false humility rob us of the truth. For so God has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. And we should keep the true God, our third point. Now you will understand, brothers and sisters, why the Apostle John rejoices so much in the fact that the members of the church follow the truth. Also in his second and third epistle, this is what binds the church together. He writes, I quote, to the children whom I love in the truth, and not I only but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us. He had written already in 2 John verse 1. And over against that, he states as well that anyone who does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. You see, beloved, against that background, 
you have to understand John's final admonition too. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. In the context of this letter, that does not mean watch out for pagan idols, stay away from temples of the gods. Uh Uh-uh. No, he did not need to say that, for they would not come near them anymore anyway. They knew already that those idols were vain or images were worthless. Why should John introduce them at the end of this epistle that way? He never spoke about idols before. No, these idols are the false conceptions of God that were held by the people of the counter-church. This admonition is in line with John's exhortation to test the spirits, to discern the teachings of the false prophets. Today, regarding creation, the flood, the miracles, the resurrection, you name it, then you end up with another God than the one who revealed himself in his word and in his works. If you undermine the scriptures and so are robbed of certainty, if you don't know anymore the true God in Christ, or don't have communion any longer according to the understanding of the truth as given by Christ, then you may say to believe in God, say to live in Christ, but then you serve an idol, a man-made image of God. Thus John urges them to stay away from any deviation of the truth which draws them away from Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. To him you must keep yourself closely. That explains, beloved, John's emphasis on the communion with the true God in him who is true. For heresy, deviation, does not only falsify the doctrine, but also makes God into another God, that is, into an idol. However, many scriptural things you still say about him, then that is not the true God. The same kind of idolatry was seen in the wilderness journey already. It also showed in the counter-church of Dan and Bethel. But there the communion with God was not. It was counterfeit imitation worship. Only by remaining in the truth, following in the ways of the Word, do we keep the communion with the true God. And that was John's concern. In that concern, he expressed his love for the church. Children, continue in the truth. Children, keep away from idols, from distortions from the truth. And is that not understandable that John is concerned about that fact at the end of his ministry in their midst? Idols of any kind are nothing. Vain. There is no hope in them either. They only lead you away from the true God. Therefore, he admonishes the church, stay in the truth. And you can. For we know, we have understanding in Christ. Stick with it. 
then you stay with God, the true God, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen.